This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Welcome to the program. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Today, we ask whether NICs can replace more severe forms of female genital mutilation and the positive effects of video games. The girl video gamers do tend to have more um, boyfriends, you know, boys who are friends. (laughs) And uh, that's really quite interesting because it suggests it might also be having this kind of also pro-social effect that you can navigate different genders. It kills more women than breast cancer and more men than prostate cancer. But why isn't it a public health priority? We're talking about stroke, which in Australia affects one person every 10 minutes. To put that into perspective, by the end of this program, at least three people across the country will have experienced a stroke. It was declared a public health emergency more than 20 years ago, but a group of delegates who visited Canberra earlier this week are saying nothing's being done to stop it. Jake Morecambe has more. I always thought that it was something for an older person to have, and I was 54 when I had my strokes. I had five of them. That's Neville Kerr. He's one of 18 delegates who travelled to Canberra earlier this week to put stroke on the public health agenda. But the number of people that I've met that are young children and, and young adults that have, have suffered stroke, and, and unfortunately it's one of those things that you don't just have it and get over it. You suffer the effects of it for quite a long time. So whether it be in in physical disability, whether it be in um, not being able to think clearly and and be able to carry on a day's work, it depends on, on what actually happens. Stroke is so vastly different for everyone. It was 20 years ago that the Howard government made stroke a public health priority. But as Neville says, very little has been done in that time to fight stroke. In my particular case, I, I had five strokes six years ago. Um, I did get back to work for about a year. It took me about seven months to get back there. And then I went back to work for about a year, but I just couldn't cope. And I wasn't able to meet the day-to-day stresses of life in a business environment. And unfortunately, that was the end of it, the the work environment for me. Being the breadwinner in our family just meant that I had a wife and three kids that needed the support, but I wasn't in a situation where I could actually give it. And, And there's too many people like that. There's too many people that don't meet the requirements for any any healthcare benefits or anything like that, and this is the hard part. We see that there's not a lot of action that's going on at the moment about it, and we just need to get the word out there that something needs to happen. Currently, there is no national strategy to fight stroke, with only one comprehensive stroke centre nationwide located at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. The Stroke Delegation, titled Stroke Summit, has called for the Turnbull government to fund a $44 million over four years stroke package that consists of a variety of evidence-based programs and solutions to help those affected by stroke. Dr Caleb Ferguson is a Stroke Safe Ambassador for the National Stroke Foundation and was one of 18 delegates who visited Canberra. 
Caleb says there are big holes in the current healthcare system, preventing stroke survivors from receiving the support they need. The first one is, is access to a stroke unit. And we know that access to a stroke unit in particular that provides multidisciplinary care that has nurses and doctors and allied health professionals, so physios, speech pathologists, social workers and so on, that people that get access to stroke units will have better outcomes. They die less and they have improved outcomes, whether or not that be functional outcome, improved quality of life and so on. But yet we still know, and this is from Stroke Foundation data from last year, that um, two-thirds of people in Australia still to this day, and this is 2016 now, still do not receive the full benefits of stroke unit care. And to me, that's quite appalling that we know that this intervention and getting yourself to a stroke unit and being cared for in in an organised inpatient unit that's specialised in stroke is not one that that everyone can access. It's it's disgusting, to be quite honest. Um, The second thing is access to thrombolysis. And so you might, to sort of simplify it, the term sort of blood thinning therapy that's available to people that have stroke but one of the eligibility sort of criteria for getting this therapy is that you have to have it within four and a half hours of onset of your signs and symptoms so there's a challenge there that people aren't getting to the hospital soon enough they're not getting assessed soon enough and not getting that treatment and I've been working in stroke care for the last 10 years and over the last five years these figures have not changed For many who experience stroke, it's not just about access to care in hospital. It's also about receiving necessary follow-up care, as the effects of stroke can be debilitating and long-lasting. But according to Caleb, the current system of follow-up care for stroke survivors is falling short. I want you to put your mind in someone else's shoes at the moment and thinking about if you had experienced stroke and, and going home, you've had all this fantastic care in hospital and a lot of support from allied health professionals and you've been transitioned to home with little follow-up and and care apart from a a GP follow-up if you're very lucky and a neurology appointment later down the track as well. Um, So one of the solutions that the Stroke Foundation is proposing was for the rollout of Stroke Connect programme and Stroke Connect is a, a phone service primarily that connects stroke survivors with a health professional and will provide a telephone call after stroke. And it seems like quite a simple, uh, low-cost intervention um, in terms of how effective that can be at preventing hospital readmission rates. And they can connect you in with other services, so it acts as a referral service to other um, health professionals as well too. Globally, we're lagging behind. Caleb says we're seeing a lot of proactive approaches to fighting stroke around the world, but it's time for Australia to step up. I've sat for the last um, two days in Canberra, and and around Canberra we often hear our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, um, talk around about the word innovation. And there's a lot of innovative therapies now available for stroke. And I've been to conferences recently in the US and the UK and Europe, and some of the innovative approaches that they use to treat stroke would be ranging from things like comprehensive stroke centres that they have in the US to now mobile stroke units um, where they have almost like a CT scanner in the back of an ambulance and they're able to assess patients in the ambulance, provide them with a CT scan and thrombolysis 
even before they get to the hospital. So this is mm. new cutting-edge therapy in the US and Europe that we're seeing. And Australia is really falling quite far behind in sort of advances in, in stroke care today. Dr Caleb Ferguson, Stroke Safe Ambassador for the National Stroke Foundation. For Neville, it's now a waiting game. Visiting Canberra for the third year in a row and seeing no governmental action to fight stroke, I asked him if he thought this year was the year. I don't know. I don't know. It was deemed by the government back 20 years ago that something had to be done and nothing has happened. And yet you talk to some politicians, they say that, you know, the money just isn't there to be able to assist people in this regard. But, you know, there has to be something somewhere along the line. There are so many people that are looking for assistance from the government and, and handouts and, and funding for a number of issues. And, and we understand that. We understand that it's there, but at least put us on the list. At least put us on so that there's something that comes in our direction to go with it. Neville Kerr, stroke survivor, ending that story by Jake Morecambe. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Late last month, a group of American gynaecologists proposed a novel solution to reducing the harm associated with female genital mutilation. The article, published in the British Medical Journal, or BMJ, said societies should allow a small surgical cut, or nick, to be made on young female girls. As you would expect, the article caused heated debate. And a warning, this does include medical descriptions that may be difficult to hear. Makes me uh, uh, just so angry because at the end of the day, in what universe should we legalize domestic uh, violence against little girls? In what universe do we say child abuse is okay? In what context do we say child abuse is okay? In February, UNICEF released updated figures on the amount of women who have had their genitals mutilated. Today, 200 million girls and women are living with female genital mutilation, or FGM. The number has increased since 2014 due to population growth and new data from Indonesia. There are many initiatives aimed at curbing FGM, from community engagement to education. There's even a sustainable development goal dedicated to eliminating FGM by 2030. But a group of American gynaecologists have another idea. It's called a vulvanic. Uh, A vulvanic would be sticking the vulva uh, with a uh, small instrument such as a needle or a lancet uh, just to uh, draw a drop or two of blood. And as much as one would stick a finger to uh, get uh, blood for a uh, blood test uh, with, with uh, nothing being cut and, uh, and, and nothing being removed. This is Dr. Alan Jacobs, Director of Gynecologic Oncology at Coney Island Hospital in New York. He's one of the co-authors of the paper that proposes a vulva nick. To explain further, there are four types of genital mutilation – There's type 1, which involves removal of part of the clitoris. Type 2, which is the total removal of the clitoris and the inner folds of the vulva. Then there is type 3, which involves cutting and repositioning the inner and outer forms of the vulva, sometimes with the removal of the clitoris. This is called infibulation. Type 4 includes everything else, like pricking and piercing. The authors argue for a new categorization. Without going into too much detail, category one would include the vulvanic and any other procedure that doesn't damage the function of the genitalia. Alan says the nick would heal and would only cause pain during the procedure itself. Uh, I think that it would always heal and it would cause minimal pain except 
However, Angela Dawson doesn't entirely agree. Okay. Hi, I'm Angela Dawson. Um, I'm a senior lecturer here in the Faculty of Health at University of Technology in Sydney. Angela says it could go either way. The cut may heal or it may not. Yeah, it would heal or it may not. There may be adverse conditions that arise from those NICS cuts. There may be distress and and, uh, psychological trauma that's experienced by the girls. Part of the reason this solution is proposed is because the cultural practice is so pervasive. The authors argue that advocacy and legislation haven't done enough to reduce the prevalence. To be clear, the authors of this paper don't condone female genital mutilation. They are merely suggesting a harm minimisation approach. Dr Jacobs told Think Health he saw it as a transitional step. Ideally, it would be a transition to stamping out the process, and if it turned out not to be, then we'd still be ahead of the game as people were doing that instead of uh, mutilating uh, the genitalia. Dr Jacobs cites the example of a group of Somali people living in Seattle who agreed to a NIC-like procedure to substitute type 3 FGM, which is commonly practised in Somalia. As a, as a substitute for a, a worse procedure, this is something that some groups have agreed to in the West, but where uh, there was a pushback from activists and so that uh, it was abandoned in those communities. There are two communities that where this was proposed and almost uh, done were Seattle and Florence, Italy. But the validity of this study is disputed. Uh, my name is Ruth Macklin, and I'm a professor of bioethics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Ruth says it's very unlikely cultures that practice the extreme forms of FGM will accept a nick. The, the authors cite some studies uh, social science studies that have asked people in the cultures where the uh, the practice is the most prevalent, uh, such as Somalia and Sudan, where somewhere more than 95% of the women uh, have undergone this procedure in those cu- cultures. And when they were asked in a social science study uh, whether they approve of a milder form, not, not uh, eliminating it altogether, but approve a milder form, uh, they said, no, we believe in the, uh, we want to continue uh, the more severe forms in which they're basically cutting, uh, uh, excising the clitoris, uh, the labia, or even sewing up the woman in what's called infibulation. So it's very unlikely that those cultures are going to accept the, uh, the NIC. And as for the NIC being useful as a transitional step, the counter-argument is that it normalises an otherwise condemnable practice. Khadija Blah is an FGM survivor and anti-FGM campaigner. The key message in the fight against FGM is eradication. It's stopping it. It's not to come up with lesser forms. There is no such thing as a lesser form. Khadija goes even further. She believes that this lesser form of FGM is still child abuse. I think what they essentially what they're advocating for is a compromise on child abuse. Female genital mutilation is child abuse. There's no two ways about it. Angela Dawson agrees that harm minimisation is not an appropriate approach, even if it is transitional. And it's, it's interesting that the, the language that's used is sort of, and the arguments put forward are predicated on the harm minimisation and harm reduction arguments. So this is the belief that undertaking 
FGM within hygienic and sterile procedures and having it performed by a health professional will therefore reduce any um, adverse uh, um, outcomes. And I've suggested that there are, in fact, um, some adverse outcomes. But I think this serves to prolong and legitimise the practice. And because health professionals are... Um, they have a high status in our society and we generally support their views. Therefore, health professionals undertaking FGM within a legitimised and euphemised environment may serve to maintain the practice. Part of the argument for FGM is that we shouldn't eliminate a cultural or religious practice and that the milder forms of FGM are comparable to male circumcision. But Ruth says not all cultural practices deserve respect. Well, uh, let's think of some of the more extreme uh, things that have been done in the name of culture over the years. Um, sacrifice of human beings, killing the firstborn, femicide, as it's called, uh, in cultures that have a very strong male preference for sons. Uh, there it's well known that even today, baby girls or as a both at the time of abortion when it's a fetus, but even a baby girl infant uh, is sometimes killed. Now, these are cultural practices and they don't deserve respect uh, precisely because they involve killing or otherwise harming human beings. FGM at its core, according to Ruth, is about controlling women. And even the Nick plays into this paradigm. One could claim that if it's done hygienically by physicians with anesthesia in an appropriate setting, that it does not cause, certainly doesn't cause permanent harm. And if done with an anesthesia, arguably it doesn't cause pain. But then we have to look at the purpose of this ritual and why it exists. Uh, it is a practice as practiced in the extreme, but even also some of the milder forms. It's a way of controlling women. That's the very purpose of it. Uh, in its more extreme forms, when the, the area around the vagina is sewn up, it's to prevent the woman from actually having sex with anybody other than the person that she is destined to marry. And that itself can be a rather brutal circumstance because the husband has to take a knife and cut the woman open in order to be able to have uh, marital sexual intercourse. But the whole practice, even today, in the, used in the milder forms, is still a way of controlling women. And here's the example. If a woman has to be cut in some way or other in order to be marriageable, that is, to be a candidate for marriage, that's another way of controlling women. Medicalization of the practice was raised as a cause for concern by both Angela and Khadija. Angela says that even in countries where the practice is performed by a trained professional, things can still go pear-shaped. And in fact, this medicalization of practice, which is performed in Malaysia and um, Egypt, is highly problematic. We just a couple of years ago, a 13-year-old girl died um, under the um, knife of a um, qualified regulated surgeon who has actually since been um, struck off. So this young girl and that um, with all her life before her died, like bled to death within a legitimized environment. Khadija says she thinks gynecologists will use this as a way to make money. The point is they're basically trying to legalize child abuse and it's also then the money goes to them. They will make money off child abuse essentially. That's what they're calling for.
We have put Khadija's concerns to Dr Jacobs in writing, as he was unavailable to comment at the time of broadcast. We will publish Dr Jacobs' response on our website. Everyone does agree on one thing, though. Education is key. Dr Jacobs again. Uh, I, I think that it uh, should be done. It's uh, something that that uh, we, we pretty much uh, all disapprove of uh, uh, mutilating female genital procedures, and uh, we should try to encourage people to stop them. Angela says we have evidence that education does work. We do have some good research from Africa and the beginnings of, of some good work in the UK where changing uh, the rites of passage um, for young girls um, from FGM to, to other uh, community-designated events or, or practices, as well as involving men in community activities um, and education can actually be quite instrumental in changing behaviours. Khadija worries that conversations like this about the NIC are an unnecessary distraction from eradication. The fact that we're having this conversation, to be honest with you, takes away from the fight that we are doing all over the world. Women and men and, you know, people, are, the efforts we're putting into making sure that this extreme form of child abuse stops. It's certainly a hard debate to swallow, let alone make up your mind about. Khadija says we need to remember who we're talking about here. Look, for people listening, and I know when it comes to female genital mutilation, there's so many voices, and there's so many inputs from different people, and there's so many reasons thrown around. The discussion goes round and round in circles. This is what I want people to remember, if nothing else at all. Female genital mutilation is about little girls. It's about those little girls and their right to not be mutilated. It's about little girls and their right to grow up to be healthy women. It's as simple as that. Let's all remember we have cousins, we have daughters, we have nieces. This is about little girls. And they don't have a voice. And they look to us to protect them and to defend, defend them. If you'd like to find out more about that debate, including hearing Khadija's full story, you can find extra links on our website, 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. How long did your children play video games for yesterday? If it was under two hours, chances are it's actually doing some good. That's the results of a new study looking at the use of video games in kids and teens aged 11 to 15. However, those using video games beyond the recommended two hours is a cause for concern. Fiona Brooks is a professor of child and family health at UTS. The negatives are around uh, that it displaces um, other positive activities such as um, physical activity or um, educational attention to your education, your homework. You'd much rather be playing computer games rather than doing your homework, and I can kind of see that. (laughs) Also that it may uh, actually create aggression, although that is highly contested. The violence angle and whether or not it causes more violent behaviour is a very contested and poorly proven area. But the main areas are that it really displaces other positive activities and may make you more isolated. But there are positives associated with video games. In the the scientific literature, what are they? Yeah, absolutely. And they're often downplayed. Often when we talk about this, we only think about the negatives. 
But actually the positives are that in reality it may actually increase your ability to be pro-social and cooperate with others, work in teams. It, it has a lot of, offers a lot of the skill set that actually modern employers want. They want you to be able to work in teams. They want you to cooperate. They want you to have communication skills. And actually the sort of online gaming that is emerging and those kinds of experiences actually may um, increase that. It may also make you more motivated to achieve because you're learning how to achieve in sort of small bites and getting rewards for that. So there is some evidence that game theory actually can, can improve your motivation. Speaking about the the working together and the collaboration, yeah. I guess something a lot of people might not know is that you can play a video game and be talking to people on the other side of the globe. Yeah, absolutely. I remember watching... Um, some of the young people we were, we had in the study and also my own son and he would be talking to people in Russia and America and and be engaging with them in the game and, and getting them to cooperate as part of a team that's quite a useful skill actually yeah. <laughs> so tell me a bit about the study that you have just done it was for 11 to 15 year olds yes. yes so we looked we asked them about how much game playing they actually did um who they did it with um as well as the other sorts of activities they did. So how much physical activity they did, but also aspects of their social and emotional well-being. So were they bullied? Um, did they have, what was their life satisfaction like overall? All those kinds of hosts of kind of well-being issues we looked at. Tell me a bit about how much time kids are actually spending playing video games. Does it vary among the age groups? Yes, um, the younger ones, the 11 to 13 years, tend to spend more. Um, and that seems to be part of those kind of natural maturation process. You get engaged in these games, and as you get older, you move on to other things. There are some issues about the 15-year-olds who did carry on playing high levels of games, game playing, actually had worse outcomes than, than those who only kind of stuck to around two hours a night. Some young people were playing up to seven hours a night, which is excessive. Most of the policy recommendations there have been and studies that I've looked at have said two, two, around two hours a night of screen time, including video gaming, is okay. It's not actually going to cause any harm and may have some of the benefits that we just outlined. And so the majority of 11 to 15-year-olds are sticking to that two-hour time limit? Yeah, but there is a significant minority that are exceeding that, around 7 to 10%, and some of them were playing, I don't know how they put it in, but seven hours, up to seven hours a night, which means that would be affecting their sleep patterns, their ability to perform at school the next day. This is on a weekday. And how does physical activity play? Are they still are these kids still doing physical activity? Yeah, well, it's quite interesting. It didn't seem to affect boys' physical activity levels at all, and they are much more likely to meet the recommendations anyway. Girls were less likely to be physically active, but girls were also less likely to be physically active anyway. So there is that gendered issue around promoting physical activity, irrespective of game playing, probably. It's also interesting that this study found that the girls who played video games actually had quite a few uh, friends that were boys that played yes, video games. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's probably. I mean, I mean, some of the other findings we had were that you're more likely to be bullied and more likely to have low satisfaction, low life satisfaction if you were older and played lots of um, video gaming. And maybe it's because video gaming becomes, it's not a cause of that, but actually it becomes a protective factor that it gives you a, a different kind of space. Do girls in this age group tend to have, like just generally speaking, tend to have male friends? Um, it, it, as they get older, they tend to. Uh, the younger ones are less likely to. So it's quite interesting, but they, but the... 
the girl video gamers did tend to have more um, boyfriends, you know, boys who were friends <laughs> rather than partners. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's really quite interesting because it suggests it might also be having this kind of also pro-social effect that you can navigate different genders um, more effectively. You mentioned life satisfaction. What yeah. does that mean? Life satisfaction is your overall how good you feel your life is. So it's a really important measure. It's a subjective assessment. It's how you feel your life is on a scale of 1 to 10. So 7 to 10 is generally felt to be good. Um, 8 to 10 is very good. Uh, And then those with low life satisfaction, i.e. 0 to 4, tend to have poorer outcomes. And if you have low life satisfaction when you're a young person, you tend to also have poorer adult outcomes. So it's a really important measure of all sorts of... um, life chances really and how did life satisfaction play play into the video game study yeah girls who um engaged in higher levels of video gaming tended to have lower life satisfaction and boys who engage in lots of um, gaming tended more like to be report they were being bullied so it suggests that it may be being used as an alternative escape route from some of these pressures that they're feeling around the rest of their lives but if you're playing video games at a reasonable rate, is your life satisfaction levels high? It's not affected at all. So two, two hours a night is absolutely kind of the cut-off point. That was Fiona Brooks, Professor of Child and Family Health at UTS. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. Please remember that you should not consider the contents of this show medical advice. If this show has made you ask questions, which is great, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Melon Lee Beater. See you next week for more in health research and news.